Welcome to the Probate Realtor Show, your one source for selling and buying real estate through trust and probate. Hear directly from the best attorneys and trusted advisors on how executors and administrators navigate the probate process in and out of court. Being a personal representative or successor trustee can be a daunting task, and often beneficiaries don't have a clear plan. Let us help you make the right decision for your clients, your family, and your legacy. And now, here's your host, the probate realtor himself, Matias Baker Mazzucci. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode. Today, we are talking to Glenn Kangas. Glenn, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. Glenn is an appraiser. And if you know, well, you maybe you don't know this about me, but I have a soft spot for appraiser. And let me tell you why. When I took my broker course, I had already been in real estate for a little bit. So as part of the training, I took an appraisal course and I absolutely loved it. I was like, wow, you can really figure out the value. If you can figure out the value of an asset, you have so much power. So that's why I have an admiration for, for what you do, Glenn. Um, one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about and why I, I'm having you on the show, like uh, one of the starting point is time of death appraisal. Uh, mm -hmm. This is something that happens in our business of, of trust and probate somewhat with regularity. Well, first of all, actually, let's tell me what, what is an appraisal? Well, the appraisal, actually the purpose of the, an appraisal and the, the existence of an appraiser in general is mm -hmm. the appraiser's job is to be the independent, unbiased, disinterested third party. Uh, in the majority of real estate transactions, everybody in the transaction is pretty much tied to it in one way or another, either emotionally or financially. And the appraisers exist to be someone who comes in and is just the analyst. It's like they don't care about any other stuff. Uh, I joke that we're cold-hearted. You know, you know, we're just a cold-hearted analyst. But that's our job. Our job is to be right. that way. We're like the referee or the umpire. That's our job is to be independent. So it's very important uh, in the process, and that's why it's it's significant. So uh, the appraisal itself, we actually have a you know processes that we follow as appraisers. Mm -hmm. We have standards that we follow. Uh, that other, you know, that are peer supported and peer uh, reviewed uh, in the process to make sure that we're doing it the right way, that we're not uh, using a method that's not acceptable or that doesn't make sense. And we try to be as transparent as possible too, and what we're doing, why we're doing it, and why we arrive at the value that we arrive at. So that's kind of in a nutshell, the job of an appraiser and why the, the why an appraiser exists. Very good. Um, let's talk about the collection of data. Obviously, it's analyzing information. Do you have a standard approach to collecting information regarding a property? Yes, absolutely. The most significant thing is inspecting the property. Mm -hmm. um, now, in data death appraisals, we, we can't always inspect the property. There's times when it's already been sold or there's right. an issue or something like that. But the collection of data as far as inspecting it to measure it, see it, you know, understand the condition you know, of the property and, and where it sits and things like that is really important. But then we go through, after that, we go through the process of just uh, looking up comparable data. The great thing about nowadays is with computerized MLS, it's much easier than it used to be uh, to find all of the data. And the more data we look at, the uh, for me personally anyway, the clearer the value is in my mind, the more data I see. So that's just initial collection of data. And then we verify a lot of the information 
that's in MLS or about properties. We review the mm -hmm. photos of them. We may I get calls call all the time from appraisers that are like, I'm checking on this property. That's you the know, next thing is to call the agent. For that. <laughs> yeah. Well, first I have to call the agent to say, uh, okay, tell me the real story of the house, not the uh, your sales pitch that maybe right. embellished a little bit or something like that. So, And in particular, when you see a piece of data that appears to be an outlier, doesn't fit with the other data, it's you know always great to call the agent and talk to them about hey what was the situation uh you know why you know why did it sell for what it sold for and um usually the agents are actually the best source of information quite honestly uh the more i talk to agents about uh comparables in an appraisal uh, the better i generally feel about my value in appraisals that makes total sense let's talk yeah. about date of death appraisal what is a date of death appraisal so a date of death appraisal is uh, to establish a step-up basis value. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the favorite things that I like about doing date of death appraisals is it helps people not give tax money to the government. So there you go. I am a big fan of keeping your money in your pocket yeah. as much of it as you can. So the step-up basis, especially for someone's own property for a very long time, and in Southern California, the values are so dramatically higher. The raising it to the value as of the date of death makes it to where the family or the surviving you know, trustees or anything like that uh, don't have to pay capital gains tax on the difference between those two values. So if they paid $30,000 in 1970 and it's worth 900,000 now, that's a pretty big tax savings. Um, Absolutely. So, and the significance of the date of death appraisal is that we do it as the value is as of the date of death. So uh, sometimes for us, that's a month ago or two months ago. But sometimes we get a call and that was three years ago or five years ago, or uh, I've done one as early as 1980, which was a little more challenging. Wow. Um, yeah. So, uh, but the whole point is just for the step-up basis. And that applies whether somebody has a property in a trust or not. It doesn't matter if it's in a trust. Um, True. To do that. So in my experience, I, I've had uh, circumstances where one spouse passes away. And then um, another spouse passes away years later, or they don't, or they actually were still alive, but they were, you know, they were selling. So they were like, this example that I can think of, like you said, 1980, this was in, uh, in 1990 when the person had passed away and they had right. to figure out. So when you're working like that, essentially time traveling retroactively, some of the agents may not be around that you can call and be like, hey, why did that your house, why did this house sell? And some of the data is in the MLS may not be, a, be available. So what are your tricks? What are you, how do you go about something, an assignment such as that? Well, uh, myself and a handful of appraisers invested in a time machine and uh, <laughs> it works really well. It's a little expensive. So we charge extra for those, but Is it inside no, those DeLorean? actually are. Yeah. Yeah. It's a DeLorean. Yeah. It's actually pretty fascinating. Uh, I actually have an appraiser friend who has a lot of old books uh, oh, okay. from the MLS books. Mm -hmm. uh, if, anybody has that and can get access to that that's the best uh, avenue in that situation i'm still trying to collect books but there's very few of those around so that's the best the best ability the best avenue uh for an older home right. uh the other thing too is we we just look at you have to look at the old data from like realist or some other source like that right uh, you can look up data back then there's no pictures there's no mls mm -hmm. uh, and you, you know the mls kind of started around 1998 and it wasn't really in full force really all over Southern California to about 2004. 
mm. where there's a significant amount of data. So, you know, we go back that way. Uh, you might do some research on some articles about real estate back in that time frame that might tell you a little bit what's going on. Oh, we wow. also look up the Case-Shiller Index, too. Oh, very good. The Case-Shiller Index will at least give you uh, about the region, even though the individual neighborhood could be a little different. So I've used the Case-Shiller Index a few times. The other thing you can do is if there's MLS on an older sale, but not quite that old, at least you have a reference point of, okay, at that date, it looked like that. And you look up permits to on if remodeling was done or an addition was done or something like that. Because mm -hmm. I've had somewhere the house back then was much smaller than the current house. Right. Um, so it, it was a challenge to to figure it out. But it's it's very much a detective work. This uh, type of forensic work. Yes. Yeah. And I can tell very that much. you love it. I can tell that you love doing it. Uh, yeah. it's I love figuring it out. Uh, I love the history. I love the history of real estate, the history of a home and a family too. Um, yeah. So that's part of it. And yeah, it's it's fun to dig into that. Uh, I read a lot of Buster Brown when I was a kid and Hardy Boys when I was a kid. So oh, there you go. It kind of falls into that. Nice, nice. Okay, let me ask you this question. Um, you mentioned about you check permits, and a lot of the times we have unpermitted work that was done. How do you treat unpermitted square footage? Yeah, unpermitted square footage. Uh, the real challenge, too, in, in that, in a retrospective one, when you're going back in time, depending mm -hmm. on how far back you go, it's how does the market react to that? Right. Um, so we, in that case, the market, for the most part, if the quality is similar to the rest of the house, it does contribute value, but it generally doesn't contribute value at quite the same rate as the mm -hmm. rest of the house. So we, we try to find other sales that had unpermitted uh, additions and then compare that to the sales that didn't have unpermitted conditions and just see what kind of difference there was. It also depends too what type, what the addition was right? Um, and how functional it was. Uh, I've seen houses with a, a 1500 square foot house with a 900 square foot room added to it because uh, they like to entertain. Well, the functionality of that for the market is different than if they added 900 square feet that was two bedrooms and a bath and a den. Of course. Um, so we look at that kind of stuff too. But yeah, it's definitely more detective work, more finding sales that had some type of similar issue uh, just to see how the market reacted to it. That makes total sense. Let me ask you another question. Um, you said, you mentioned that somebody, sometimes you don't have access to the property. You know, it's possible we see that the property was either sold or, or what have you. There's no access to the property. How do you go? You can't see the inside. You don't know the conditions. What is the process in those cases? Uh, the process in those cases, number one, I actually send a uh, Google Forms uh, questionnaire to the client that asks them questions about the house. What was the condition like? Mm -hmm. Had there been any remodeling you know, prior to the effective date? The effective date, obviously, is the date of death. And then also, if it did sell, if it was on MLS, most likely they have pictures and everything from, from the sale. Sold. Right. So we, you know, we'll even use those in the report. But we do, again, send out that questionnaire that says, what was the difference between the house on the date of death and the house when you sold it? Mm -hmm. Because if they did some cleanup and painting and, you know, most likely they had to, you know, get rid of, you know, declutter and stuff like that. But if they didn't do any major remodeling, then obviously we can use that uh, as the basis for it. So, yeah, just, you know, talking to the, to the client uh, is the way to find out about as much of that as possible. 
So ask questions. You got to be good yeah. at asking asking the right questions. Obviously. Yes. Mm -hmm. Let's talk briefly about fractional interest. Mm -hmm. I know that this happens in my business. Uh, somebody said, you know, um, half of these properties in probate, the other half is just standard sale um, because it was a tenancy in common or whatever their circumstances may be. So my question to you, it's relatively specific. Is it, let's say you have a 50% interest on a property and half of it, you know, and you have to appraise just the half of it. Are you uh, just splitting it in half? Is it that simple? Is that valuation of the whole and then split it in half? There's usually actually, you, you start with valuing the whole thing mm -hmm. and then ask, uh, identifying the interest uh, that's being appraised. But the majority of time, there's a fractional interest marketability discount uh, uh, that we make. And there's actually been case law in California. Uh, I've taken been in several seminars and webinars with uh, judges and attorneys and that where they've uh, cited case law um, that shows what the fractional interest marketability discount was. So if somebody owns 50%, how hard is it to sell that 50%? Right. Well, if you sold it, there's going to be some discount for the most part of the market. Um, so we, the biggest thing is we try to call people who have been involved in sales like that and mm -hmm. ask them what they felt that the difference was, uh, just the survey method of realtors with experience. Uh, but again, we also refer to the case law that kind of the IRS, when the case law has kind of set guidelines that said, well, you should be around here. Um, right, right. And we just cite that and reference that other thing. But yeah, there's definitely a discount trying to sell a piece of the whole rather than selling the whole. There are issues that come with that. Yeah, that makes total sense. Now, if I remember correctly from my old days of uh, of, of training, uh, you know, I remember reading about the three uh, methods of, of appraisal, the three methods of approach. I use the comp the comparable, the comparison approach all the time. And I use the income approach just almost as often whenever, you know, I, I'm praising an apartment building, shopping mall or whatever, or, or what have you. However, there is a third method also, which is the cost approach, you know, which I remember reading and, and never applying, you know, like things like churches and things that don't produce income. Uh, have you, have you had, did you find yourself having to use the cost the co the cost approach anytime in your career? Yeah, we actually use the cost approach on a pretty regular basis. Okay. The newer the property, the more uh, relative and effective it is. Mm -hmm. uh, with an old property, when you now you're trying to estimate depreciation, what's the cost to rebuild it now? The way it you know the same or similar. Uh, yeah. There's also a reproduction cost or a replacement cost. Oh, reproduction, right. like on a on a Wallace Neff style home or some type of significant architecture, yes. significant home, a craftsman or something like that. Reproduction cost would be to do it just like it was. Mm -hmm. Replacement cost is to build something similar, but not necessarily exactly like it. And this could be big differences. But yeah, the cost approach is actually really a great method to kind of tell you what the maximum value is. If somebody can reproduce it for that right. with the land, uh, it tells you there's no reason to pay a lot more than that. Um, yes. And most people would pay less than whatever the cost approach would generate, especially when we include entrepreneurial profit in that. Um, that makes sense. And that, that's actually in reviewing appraisals. A lot of times you see uh, the cost approach points out where somebody kind of over appraised a property. You see some numbers that don't make sense in the cost approach. But the challenge in Southern California is the, the cost to build is pretty expensive. 
and the cost to build a, a home for a builder building hundreds or thousands of homes is less than the cost for a spec builder. So of course, some variations there. But yeah, the cost approach is pretty effective uh, in many cases. But the older the house, the the less effective it tends to be. Just depreciation is hard to calculate because there's multiple facets of depreciation in a in a house. That makes sense. Very very nice. Um, now, when you are um, when you're using the income approach, for instance, uh, give me give me scenarios of of when something like that it's you know cut and dry. You're like, this is what we're gonna go with. I know you focus on residential, obviously, but what are some of the assets where the income approach is really the only sensible thing to do? Yeah, the the income approach we use for two to four unit properties, which as mm -hmm. residential appraisers we do up to four units, so mm -hmm. we definitely do that. Uh, you can do it on a single family in a in a neighborhood or an area where there's a lot of single family rentals. Mm -hmm. um, that's certainly and the income approach there is not the only approach relied on it, but it's a great verification method of you know the sales comparison is saying this, and then the income is saying this, and then you reconcile. Uh, and when uh, you know when people do apartment buildings, I don't do them again because four units is my max, but. Mm -hmm. I know that when they're doing apartments and offices and stuff, the income approach is really the primary approach. Right. And that's one of the differences between commercial appraisers versus residential appraisers. Residential appraising is much more direct comparison mm -hmm. uh, of you know a similar property, whereas in the income approach for commercial or apartment buildings or offices or whatever, it's really driven by the income because you don't have as much direct similar properties to compare. If you right. find one, you're very excited in those situations. The area where the income approach makes a significant difference too is in areas with rent control. Yes, of course. When somebody's got a, a building that's got a lot of people uh, with rent controlled units that are well below market rent, those do sell for less. And the income approach actually uh, can demonstrate that by having comparables that have market rents when they sold and comparables that were below market rents when they sold. And it gives you that range of gross rent multipliers or cap rates, depending on the type of property. Um, and it's it's pretty effective in helping figure out what the value of the property is. Very nice. I mean, I could talk about this for, for hours, as you can tell. Uh, and too. I know that you, you yeah, exactly. Uh, let me ask you one more question. Sometimes, like you mentioned, there are architectural properties, properties that are unique, uh, I can think of an example of a 7,000 square foot craftsman, you know, and in the neighborhood, they're all, you know, 2,000, 1,500 square feet. So apart from that, or when you find yourself with such a unique property, my, my, the question that I wanted to pick your brain about is how far out are you comfortable going to find a similar sale? When you are not, you know, we have like sometimes horse properties we find ourselves that are, that maybe there's nothing quite right around it. You know, how do you deal with those challenges? Yeah, you definitely need to go in a lot of those cases, go to other areas to find uh, a comparable sale. Uh, mm -hmm. And, you know, I've got, I've had in certain cases where I've, none of the sales that I used were anywhere near uh, my property just because my property right. is so unique. Uh, and you go to other areas that have similar types of properties. Horse property, again, again a great thing. Uh, you know, if you're in Bradbury, there's horse properties. Uh, although most of the new buyers in there are not using them for horse properties. But anytime you have a situation, you go to other areas that have horse properties. And first, you, got, you, you find the similar 
you know, house and or amenities, but then you have to compare those two locations too. Yes. One area might be higher or lower than the other, uh, but we can analyze that and come up with a location adjustment to figure that out. Um, so there definitely are methodologies for doing all of that. And when you do have the, when you have the, like the big house with a bunch of little ones around it, that actually becomes where you have to analyze uh, is the market willing to pay a premium right or is there uh, some external obsolescence and somebody's going to get a good deal on a big house because uh, that immediate area is uh, just not supportive of paying what that property would be worth if it was in amongst similar homes i had an exact situation like that in a probate that i was called in by one of the heirs to the uh, probate referee had overappraised the house dramatically it wasn't architecturally significant it was old and it was neat but it was very run down. It was on a big lot. And it was in a part of Pasadena that was essentially Altadena. And everything mm -hmm. around it was small house, small lot. And they had gone to a far superior area for comparables, but did not adjust for the location. Uh, and that's where the, ch the challenge is adjusting for the location. Um, so we actually, that one was actually appraised at twice as much as it should have been. Wow, twice as much. There is the yeah. scenario, but I absolutely believe it 100%. You know, like it, yeah. this is the thing it's like you have homes that are worth one million dollars in the entire neighborhood, and then you think, well, mine is worth 10 million because look, mine is 7,000, right. 8,000 square feet on three acres because they never subdivided that section. But unfortunately, I mean, the neighborhood would only support so much because what you have to think about is somebody with 10 millions would they buy here? Or are they going right. to go to Beverly Hills? Are they going to go to Monte? Are yeah, they going to go to go another somewhere. area of Pasadena? You know, yeah, there's they a have great, 10 million to spend. There's a great example of that uh, in Alhambra, the uh, Phil Spector house. Oh, um, Alpine Castle. Alpine Castle. Oh my God! Yes, um, absolutely. I actually haven't checked. I did. I did a blog on it when it was listed for sale, and I kind of just analyzed what did it the last time it sold. How did it sell compared to the rest of the market there? Because there's there's nothing like that anywhere near. Of there. course. Yeah, and I still have not researched when it did because it told it took like a couple of years to sell. Oh, I'm sure I had to keep obviously sure. reducing the price, but I I think I came pretty close to what if it did the same as it did the last time, what it would have sold for. But same thing, that house in another neighborhood would have sold for double or triple what it sold sure. for, being where it was. So, yeah, Absolutely. you definitely see situations like that. I've seen that with architecturally significant home like um, a Schindler. Uh, or something like that. Uh, mm -hmm. Some those sometimes those would sell for a lot more in Bel Air or Beverly Hills than they would if it's in like you know Glendale or something like that. But some people do pay premiums uh, for yeah. those types of homes. So it's true. It's true. Let's talk a little bit about you, Glenn. How did you? How how did your journey? When you were a little kid, did you want to be an appraiser, or is that something that happened? Uh, you know, organically yeah, in your life. That's every kid's dream to be an appraiser. <laughs> I fell into it like uh, the majority of appraisers, either number one, they had a, a relative, a close relative that was in it and that uh -huh. brought him in or they stumbled into it. You know, I went to UCLA. I have a degree in political science. I started out as an engineering major, but didn't care for that that much. <laughs> I'm a numbers guy. I'm an analytics guy. And, uh, appraisal is a good fit. So actually it was a relative. It was a cousin-in-law that was an appraiser. And I had my degree from UCLA and wasn't doing anything, you know, wasn't working because I didn't want to work in politics. So I uh, took a Saturday class at PCC uh, with mm -hmm. my UCLA degree, you know, in my pocket, of course, uh, yeah. on appraising. And I loved it. 
Uh, I just, I love being an appraiser. I love the fact that half the time I'm out in the field and the other time I'm at home. It gave me flexibility when raising my kids to be there for uh, practices, coaching, volunteering, all that kind of stuff. I was able to participate heavily in their lives, uh, which was fantastic. Uh, I get paid to go snoop through people's houses and <laughs> open every door and look at everything. I get to see so many cool things. The only person I trade jobs with would be Guy Fieri on uh, Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm a big food guy, so that I might trade. But outside of that, I just love being an appraiser. And and, uh, and I don't have a problem being the, that kind of cold-hearted, independent, hey, that's what the value is. And, you know, yeah. That's your annoys people sometimes, but that, yeah, yeah. that doesn't bother me. So, um, yeah. yeah, so I just, I kind of fell into it. Uh, I'm actually been on a, I reached a point about three, four years ago where I wanted to bring more people, uh, bring young people into it. And the number one thing is just making them aware that the job exists. Of course. Uh, nobody knows. I mean, and there aren't a lot of appraisers. There's only about uh, 10,000 in California. Oh, wow. Um, compared to how many real estate agents there are when you look at any other career you look at you know career uh you know research websites and it's like lots of other careers have a way bigger numbers than appraisers but yeah but appraising is a really you know i enjoy it i enjoy it a lot so. that's wonderful all right it it's been so delightful to chat let's 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 end with a, a little bit of a of a game that i have i have uh, 30 questions that are numbered from one to 30 i would love for you to pick a number and I will randomly ask that question. Uh, 15. 15. If you could have one superpower, what would it be? Ah, one superpower. My goodness. It's a tough one, huh? That is a tough one. That, uh, I don't <laughs> yeah, know. I think I... invisibility. I don't know. Invisibility, that like a, okay. That sounds like a fun one to me, you know. Yeah. I'm, uh, you know, I, I find a lot of humor in things. So I think being invisible would allow you to to uh, hear some things and uh, do some things that would be pretty, pretty fun. So. Wonderful. Wonderful. Very nice. It's been, it's been such a pleasure to chat before I let you go. We are obviously going to have your contact information in the show notes, but for those who are listening, what is the best way to get a hold of you? Uh, the two best ways are email and uh, text or call. The email is uh, glenn.kangas at truefootage.tech. And the phone number is 626-264-4345. Uh, texting works great because I am young and hip and into technology. Oh, I now, love My kids it. say only one out of three of those are uh, accurate and you get to figure out which one, but uh, there but yeah, you go. That'd be a great one. Beautiful. Glenn, thank you so much for, for coming. I feel like we we only scratched the surface, really. I'd love to have you back. You know, you brought you you mentioned some things that that really we could talk more about. So thank you so much for stopping by the show. It's been a pleasure to have you. Thank you, everybody who's joining us for the show. And we will see you on the next episode. Bye. Great. Thanks a lot. Bye.